We're going to take just a few seconds for spiritual preparation. Hopefully, uh, maybe Carson and Cliff and Ann and some others will join us. Um, but anyhow, I have a few moments for spiritual preparation. So here we go. Excuse me? Dearly Father, we're thankful for those who are here this morning. We're thankful also, Father, that we have a marvelous text of Scripture to study and to apply to our lives. We pray, Father, for those who uh, normally attend. We know Charles is still recovering. I talked to him this week, and the therapy on his knees is going well, and we're thankful for that, and he hopes to rejoin us. We're thankful also for Carson's recovery from his operation, the fact that he is feeling so well. And also, this is the uh, one-year anniversary of Bill Banks, his uh, heart operation, and he is now a, a very vital and intricate part of the operation here at Forbes Place, and we're thankful for his service and for his health and your hand in his life. We pray for Scott and Jerry as they are on an anniversary trip. We pray, Father, that they will uh, enjoy their time together very much and that it will truly uh, allow them to spend time together, which is something that in life we don't often have that opportunity, and that they will uh, remember and enjoy the commitment and the love that they have between themselves. And Father, we're again thankful for the book of Ruth and the lessons that we are learning from Naomi and her experiences with life. We pray, Father, that we would be able to apply these situations in our life as well. And we pray that God the Holy Spirit would illuminate Scripture this morning as we study some of these passages that we'll understand, uh, have a better understanding of what is happening. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well last week we worked our way down to, I believe, verse 15 in chapter 3. We were just a bit shy of finishing. Certainly not uh, shy of the text here, but we were just a little bit shy of finishing. So we have most of chapter 3 behind us, and now we are have all of chapter 4 ahead of us. And chapter 4 is really a dynamic chapter. But let's finish up chapter 3 today. We have uh, just a couple uh, items that need to be sort of sewn up here. So let's start chapter Ruth chapter 3. And I think I'll begin in verse 14. Verse 14 picks up the situation in that she has talked with Boaz. Boaz has responded to her in a very positive way. And we saw that that was uh, sort of maybe a uh, situation where we all took a deep breath or those who might be watching the play for the first time would uh, be very thankful for the uh, situation because they knew if it was portrayed properly that this was a a very... um, Uh, unsure situation. But she has asked the question, and of course the question was, uh, take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. And we'll see that phrase, close relative, again when we get into chapter 4. And the word, the uh, phrase for close relative is what we've been referring to as the Redeemer, the Goel. And so we tried to pack that word with all the significance that it that it needs but i i doubt that we can truly understand everything that was involved in that but boaz did and boaz immediately responds by saying that he would do he would try to accomplish her request everything that she is requesting by him taking her under his wing and He tells her to lie down, that in the morning uh, he would perform. uh, He says, stay this night in verse 13. In the morning it shall be that if he, this closer relative, though, because there is a closer relative, will perform the duty of the closer relative for you, that would be good. But 
If he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you. So we see that the, the, there's a responsibility here. It's not uh, just sort of a, an, a request for marriage, but there is more to this. There's a duty here, and that's how Boaz sees it. But he says, lie down until the morning. So verse 14 says, so she laid his feet until morning. And she arose before one could recognize another. So she's going to get up early. She's going to try to go home, go back to where to Naomi, so that uh, there will not be uh, any who might misinterpret what has occurred that night. And we saw how that it could very easily be misinterpreted. And I use an example from my life, and you know, and observing people coming back early in the morning, and maybe I've misinterpreted their. Uh, their nights out. But anyhow, so she says, so she lay at his feet until morning and she arose before one could recognize one another. Then he said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And this is Boaz. This is Boaz speaking to others who now are probably up and aware that she is there. And of course, they probably would have wondered, how in the world did she get here? I don't think she was here the night before, I don't remember seeing her last night. So how does she, uh, how does she arrive here? But he says, well, however that is, we're not going to talk about it. Verse 15, and also he said, bring the shawl. Now he's speaking, changing from speaking to those who are with him, and now he's speaking to Ruth again. Bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And the shawl. And then, and when she held it, he measured six Amounts. We're not sure what this is, but six amounts of barley. And laid it on her or helped her then hoist it up so she can travel. And, excuse me, then she went into the city. That's how my King James Version reads. Then she, and last week we saw that um, the word she is not what is in most of the texts. Uh, most of the texts have the word he, but the translators, for some reason, think that there may have been a mistake. And there's really no reason to believe there's a mistake here, but they, in reading the context, they think that the flow of this paragraph would be, and he laid it on her, and then she would leave. But the, uh, uh, the Hebrew text says he, then he went into the city. And uh, I, I don't think there's any reason here for us to change that. As I said last time, that the textual problem, I think, is simply created by those who are anticipating something other than what's said. I think the best arguments seem to favor he, not she. I think it would be understood, uh, I think, from, the, from what we have, that she, is gonna, she will be heading back into the city but it's not necessarily understood that he would be. And so I think the narrator here is telling us that he's anxious to resolve the matter, and so it's he that is heading into the city, and they want to make sure we know that. So he's heading into the city. Now, we have a little bit of a break, verse 16 through 18. And this helps us to understand a little bit of what is happening, I think. Verse 16, when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, and now we have Naomi. So when she, Ruth, came to her mother-in-law, she, Naomi, said, is that you, my daughter? And we have a little congruity here in that question because uh, it sounds like she's expecting her, and we can imagine that that is certainly true. She's maybe been expecting her all night but now she's expecting her, and she says, is that you, my daughter? And uh, what we have here is an interrogative pronoun. We really don't have, is that you, but we have the word who. And if we were translating this, we would say, maybe along the line, who is it, my daughter? Well, that makes no sense, because if she knows it's her daughter, then she knows who it, who it is. So... Uh, the uses of these interrogative pronouns in Hebrew are a little bit broad, and they can be translated several ways. Some have suggested her greeting would be, how are you, my daughter? Um, I think that maybe more specifically, she's saying, instead of 
who, it's, it's maybe more of a how here, and it's a question of how did it go. Uh, how are you is, I think, very close. Uh, how did it go? And maybe more specifically from the mother's standpoint, it's sort of, are you engaged? You know, how did this go? That's her concern. She's, you know, she knew when she left what she was going to be doing. And so the next question is, what happened? So it's a little, this is, and as I've said in a couple other places, the Hebrew is sometimes a little difficult to translate. Uh, because also Semitic languages don't translate real nicely into English. And so the the sense of the words are what we're looking for here. And so I, I think the sense of the word is more, how did it go, how are you, uh, of that nature. Then she, Ruth, told Naomi all that the man had done for her. So we have this very interesting uh, beginning. And as I've said last time, Naomi, I think I may have said this last time, Naomi probably has not slept most of the night either. I mean, we, we said that uh, Ruth probably didn't sleep much. She didn't sleep uh, while Boaz was sleeping. Boaz probably slept uh, the first part of the night until his feet got cold. Uh, but Ruth probably wasn't sleeping, probably didn't sleep a wink. And then after the exchange, she's probably not sleeping Either, And I would imagine that Boaz didn't sleep much. He probably was thinking about the next day. Uh, but Naomi, the other main character here, while she's not very close by, she's probably not sleeping either. Um, and I think that this is like an interested mother waiting for uh, a daughter to come back from you know, a date, a date in which she probably thinks something is about to happen. So she's waiting for her daughter to come back from a late date. And, of course, it could also be a son, and I have to confess. Uh, and I don't think I understood this until many years later, uh, that when I would be out, and I can't really remember, I was out on ever that many dates, but uh, even when I was coming back from college and I might be out, mother would always wait up. And she'd be up reading uh, in bed, and as I'm trying to sneak up the stairs coming in a little bit late she'd always say dan come in and tell me everything that happened or tell me about what tell me what's going on and of course at the time you're a little put out by that you know that's oh mom but she always wanted to hear she was always very interested uh and so you can even imagine more the case here with Naomi because of the gravity of the situation. And not only that, but Ruth is executing her scheme, we might say, her plan. This was uh, Naomi's plan that she put together. So I imagine that Naomi, Naomi spent a very restless night. She probably thought about how, uh, I wonder if we're doing this exactly right. I wonder if we should, could have maybe said this or said that. And so all night long, she's probably alternately praying about it, thinking about it, putting it back in the Lord's hands, taking it, putting it back in the Lord's hands, saying, oh, Lord, it's up to you. And then saying, well, maybe, oh, no, Lord, it's up to you. So, you know, so that's kind of the way we do things when we're anxious and we're somewhat worried and we're concerned. You know, we give it to the Lord and then say, no, Lord, no, take it back. No, Lord, you, no, okay, you know, back and forth. So that's what we have here. But anyhow, when uh, Ruth finally gets home, and Ruth is... is um, a little bit older, I think. And so this is going to be a very wonderful exchange. It's, go, it's girl talk probably at its best. And I think it would be a very natural exchange, probably something that we'd all would have loved to have heard. So the use of the word man here instead of Boaz's name seems to be, I think, a normal way that, they would, uh, that women at that time would refer to men. Uh, it may also be an indication of respect or deference for the fact that he was a man, and of course they very much respected him for how he was conducting his life. So, verse 17. Verse 17 says, and she said, and interesting, you know, it says at the conclusion of this, she told her all that the man had done for her. So, uh, that's probably Ruth saying, you know, he said yes. I mean, he complied. He says that he's going to do this, and she also, of course, had to add, that Boaz was aware of the situation and that there was somebody that was even closer than he was. And then she says, these six measures of barley he gave me. 
For he said to me, and now we see something. We have some insight into the conversation that we had not seen before. It says, do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And that is an interesting comment. And it's even more interesting as we begin to understand uh, some of these, some of the words that were used. So she, Ruth, says, these six measures of barley he, Boaz, gave to me. For he said to me, do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And the word empty-handed. Now, where have we heard something that might relate to empty-handed before? This is the same word used by Naomi in 1-2, where she said that I came back empty. Ruth 1-21 is the verse. I said 1-2, but it's Ruth 1-21. Remember, this is back when Naomi is a bit bitter. Maybe even a lot bitter. Verse 20. But she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, because she's talking to the women of the town that are greeting her. They're very happy to see her. Do not call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. And I don't know if I pointed out to you at the time, but the word empty here in this verse comes immediately after the conjunction I. That's the emphasis in the verse. And empty, the Lord has brought me home again. So Naomi was emphasizing the fact that she was empty. Well, it's interesting that we have this word. Boaz says, do not go empty to your mother-in-law. And empty-handed is fine, but to understand the use of the word there, or the emphasis, we might want to just say, don't go empty to your mother-in-law. Now, it's hard to know whether uh, this word, you know, whether the word has special meaning from Boaz's standpoint. Uh, It would be only speculation on our part. But it's possible that Naomi didn't just say this once. She may have said it several times. Empty, the Lord brought me back. I'm empty. She may have emphasized this several times. Um, We don't know that Boaz has ever talked to Naomi. So we don't know that he's heard this from her. Um, but it is possible that, you know, as word spread that she was back, that she was saying she came back empty. She says she's empty. She's, you know, you know, life's really been hard on Naomi. I, mean, I can imagine even those of us who would necessarily be gossiping about it, but they could easily say, you know, life has been tough. She lost her husband. She lost her two sons. Uh, and she really does feel that her life is empty. Something along that line. So it's possible that she had said these things publicly and that he had heard it. Um, but I don't know that he is necessarily referring to that himself. I, it's hard for me to say. But those of us reading the account, because it's such a short account, um, hearing it probably, those of us who would be he- reading the account or hearing it in the play, I think would certainly take us back to this word, empty. I think that it naturally would. Um, but either way, it is a play on words, I believe it's a play on words, that causes us once more to realize that Naomi is never empty. She wasn't empty. So even if Boaz doesn't know that he's using a word that would have special meaning to us, I think God the Holy Spirit is making that uh, possible for us. Uh, I think he's saying the play on words uh, from the, uh, the author is that Naomi is never empty. Not when she's losing her husband or her son's or even a daughter-in-law, or might be losing her daughter-in-law. She's never empty. God is taking care of Naomi, just like he's taking care of us, and neither she nor we are empty during any of the very difficult times of life. And I think, again, God the Holy Spirit, for our benefit, ensures that this word is used. So again, Boaz is taking care of her, but in reality, God is taking care of her, and she is not 
empty. It's a curious sentence also, because while we're not aware of what Boaz says to Ruth when he gave her the grain, remember we studied that, and we're not really aware of it, it just says, bring the shawl, and he pours the grain into the shawl. We're not aware of what he said to her when he gave her the grain. Here we have Boaz's statement as reported by Ruth. And this is an interesting thing because this is all that she really reports. She doesn't go into any detail about their conversation. She doesn't go into any detail about the trip back and forth, about how she was, you know, any other events of that night. It's just this statement. Don't go empty-handed. Don't go empty to your mother-in-law, to Naomi. So, uh, it's possible that Ruth may have even asked at the time, you know, why are you giving me more grain? You know, I was here just earlier today gleaning, or if she had been there gleaning, or whenever the last time he saw her, and I think that it was possibly that she's worked right up to this time. Now he's giving her more grain. She may have even asked the question, why are you giving me this grain? And Boaz says, he doesn't want her to go go to her mother-in-law empty. And so, as I say, it's sort of a curious statement. But I think there are possibly, and this may give us a little insight into the Jewish and the Hebrew customs of the time, I think there's some explanations for this generosity, what appears to be even his generosity. So first of all, I'm going to give you about four reasons that I think Boaz does this. First, Boaz's uh, kinship. He has a kinship here. So Boaz's kinship is based on his re- his relationship with Naomi through Elimelech, not with Ruth. So his kinship is not immediately with Ruth, but it's with Naomi. That's how his relationship is developed in this situation and in the family. So his kinship is based on his relationship with Naomi through Elimelech, not Ruth. And so it would be natural for him to be thinking of Naomi and Elimelech at this time and for him to courteously think of a gift for Naomi. So Naomi is the, the, the real relative, even though she's, pro- she's not a blood relative. But, um, and we don't really know what kind of a relationship he's had with Elimelech. And that, that's a part of the story that we don't know. Uh, he may have had a very wonderful relationship with Elimelech. Um, and now he feels the, the need to take care of, of Naomi and these women. So that's a kinship that we don't know, but it's possible. Secondly, I think Boaz may have recognized that it took more than just initiative on the part of Ruth to come out this night and to make this adventure work. So Boaz probably recognizes that it took more than just initiative on the part of Ruth to make this trip to make this adventure work tonight. He probably realizes that it was Naomi who encouraged, or maybe even, we could say, authorized Ruth to end her mourning and resume normal living. So suddenly, you know, here's Ruth without her mourning garments on. Uh, possibly the day before he saw her dressed in black. Uh, she had not probably from the sense of what we have here, maybe not bathed, uh, was still uh, you know, very much covered up from um, and in her uh, respect for her husband. So it's possible that Naomi is the one that encouraged, and I said last time, this may have been somewhat of a family thing where the daughter or the son, whoever is in mourning, needs to be very respectful of others in the family. And that's how a Hebrew family was closely knit this way. If someone was to say, well, I'm I'm no longer mourning, others may have been offended at that. Well, how can you do that? You know, we've lost a son. We've lost a a mother or a father. Uh, I don't believe it's time. I think you're being very casual or inconsiderate to do this. And so I think in the families, it would be very much a family thing of when do we stop mourning here? Uh, We don't know how long Naomi mourned for Elimelech, uh, but it's very possible that it's Naomi who is the one who's authorizing it and said, okay, we have mourned long enough. And you can probably see her saying that. We've mourned long enough. Now it's time to go. And Boaz probably recognizes that that's the case. So he acknowledges and thanks Naomi by way of the grain. 
Third, he may have sent this grain as a measure of good faith. Boaz may have sent the grain as a measure of good faith that he will fulfill his promise. So that's something else that they would very often do. They would seal a promise with a gesture. And of course they often did that with sacrifices. They would have a sacrifice. In this case, Naomi or Boaz, we might say, is giving this grain as a good faith offering. So he may have given sent the grain as a measure of good faith, a good faith offering that he would fulfill his promise. And Naomi, of course, was Ruth's legal guardian at this time. He would see Ruth as as he would see Naomi as Ruth's legal guardian, and he may have decided a gift to the mother was therefore appropriate. Fourth, and this goes a little bit further, don't know exactly how far we can take this one, but fourth, it may have also been what we might call a down payment for the bridal gift given at the time of the betrothal. This was very customary uh, at that time, that at the point of betrothal, the time of betrothal, there would be a gift given. And so it is possible, and again, all of this is is speculation, but it might have been it might have even been given as a down payment for the bridal gift, which would be uh, given at the time of the betrothal. Again, Naomi was Ruth's legal guardian, and as the groom or as the anticipated groom here, Boaz may well have seen this grain as an understanding of and the proper social act on his part. So. Naomi was Ruth's legal guardian. And as the groom, future husband, Boaz may well have seen this grain as he may have seen this grain, this gift, as an understanding of and, a prop, and the proper social act on his part. <clears throat> I think it's certainly uh, an indication, certainly a sign, that he will fulfill his obligation. But I think also a gift given to the family in exchange for the hand of the daughter in marriage can can also be seen here. Okay. <clears throat> this, by the way, also, as I think I mentioned last time, sadly, is the last time that Ruth will have a speaking part. This is the last time that Ruth actually speaks in our our play, in our uh, in our book here, in the story. And from here on in, it's dominated by Boaz in the first part of chapter 4, and then we'll also see that Naomi uh, will be center stage with a speaking part. But Ruth now is going to exit as they change the uh, you know, the scenes. She's going to exit. Uh, she'll be possibly in the background from now on. You may see her here and there, or depending upon how it's handled. But really, this is her last speaking part. Verse 18. Then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. So she is, of course, Naomi. She, Naomi, says, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. And the word, therefore, until you know how the matter will turn out, is a figure of speech because it's, it's really the word for fall. And I guess what we could say, sit still until you know how the matter will fall. That's sort of the way that they would have described it. For the man will not rest. He's not going to be quiet. He's going to be continual. You know, he's going to be anxious to get this done until he has concluded the matter this day. And the word there for concluded is really, uh, it means to bring to a conclusion. So it's sort of stressed. In the, in the Hebrew. And it's always fun to come up with a current day idiom. And I think this verse starts with a phrase that means sit tight. You know, we would say, just sit tight. You know, hold on here. Uh, and I think this is wise advice from Naomi to be patient. You know, sometimes when we get into life's difficult situations, we want an answer right now. And sometimes the solutions take a little longer than what we might like. But here, Naomi says, you know, let's don't worry about it, which probably is interesting from Naomi's standpoint because she's worried about it all night long. And so now she says, just hold on, sit tight. And, of course, this is just the opposite now of the advice she gave her before when it was to take off her clothes, uh, bathe, wash, anoint yourself, get up, 
and go out there and talk to Boaz. But now it's, we've done all that we can do, and now it's time for us to sit and wait. Let's kind of, as I would often say, rest easy on your oars. We're not going to do a lot of rowing here. We're just going to sit here and wait. And so the situation is now, we might say, and according to the story, it's now in Boaz's hands, but in reality, it's in the Lord's hands because we've seen everything so far as being in the Lord's hands. Another principle is that when we give something to someone else to do, to let them do it. You know, sometimes we have a hard time with that. We give something to somebody else to do, or we might even as being in charge of something, we'll delegate something to them. And then, instead of letting them do it, we hover over them and almost ensure they do it how we would have done it. Well, I, you know, I'd like to say at this point that that is really not the way to do it. Not unless the in, whatever it is has to be done in an exact you know, special way. And uh, then, of course, maybe we can see it as training. But we shouldn't stand over somebody and tell them how to do it. Why? Because we develop no initiative or creativity in anyone by forcing them to do everything our way. And sometimes that's exactly how we do it. And really, people have been given special talents, and they'll develop things very well on their own. Uh, Most things in life don't require that kind of scrutiny. And I put down here scrutiny and henpecking. Henpecking has maybe a little bit of a specific meaning. I don't mean it that way. But we don't need to stand right over someone and do that. Because after a while, what really happens is those people become a little irritated and even prefer us not to be around. You know, we cause problems by doing things that way. Whether something is done precisely our way or not is not going to make a difference 20 years from now. It's just not going to be a big deal. However, by destroying initiative, personal expression, responsibility, creativity, and freedom to act independently will almost always immediately impact the relationship we have with that person. And so just you know, my thoughts as I was concluding this is they're now saying Boaz is going to do it. He's going to handle it. Naomi doesn't take off and say, I need to get into the city to make sure that this happens a certain way. I need to make sure that this occurs the way in which I would like it to be done. No, it's in Boaz's hands. It's in the Lord's hands. And we're going to sit here. And therefore, in no way does Naomi become a pain in the neck to Boaz before this thing even gets off the ground. So, I think and that's sometimes what happens to us. We... uh, uh, sometimes develop relationships that uh, could be much better if we didn't try to force people to do things the way we want them done. Okay, I wanted to just say a few things at the end of this chapter about chesed. You know, that's the chesed is the loyal love we saw, the faithfulness that has been mentioned a couple times, and therefore I just pulled together uh, an application, a, point, a couple points on application here on chesed and how. Chesed and integrity solve problems. First of all, the first point was that this loyal love, chesed, takes the emphasis away from our personal problems, our personal hurts, we might say, the pain. It takes the emphasis away from personal pain, personal hurt, personal disappointments, whatever it might be, and so it takes the emphasis away from the personal pain, personal emphasis, and self-absorbed, self, self-absorbed reactions. Because that's how we often react. And it places the emphasis on objectivity. So it takes the emphasis away from our personal hurt and self-absorbed reaction and places the emphasis on objectivity, biblical principles, places the emphasis on objectivity, biblical principles, and going hand-in-hand with that, absolute truths. Absolute truths, God is taking care of this. Secondly, chesed, therefore, removes emotion and emotional sins from the picture. And when I say emotions, I'm talking about here in a negative way, not in a positive way. Chesed, therefore, chesed, therefore, removes emotions and emotional sins from the picture. And the word we're using here is 
That's the transliteration of the Hebrew word that we're using, chesed. Thirdly, chesed focuses on God. Because we're talking about loyal love here and faithfulness. Chesed focuses on God and His grace as the provision and source of the solution. Chesed focuses on God and His grace and provision. Chesed focuses on God and His grace as the provision and source of the solution. That's what I wanted to say. Focuses on God and His grace as the provision and source of the solution. And fourth, chesed means that integrity is the standard for conducting life. Integrity, of course, which is based on biblical truth, Bible doctrine. Chesed means that integrity is the standard for conducting life in a trial or a test. In what we might call a trial in life or a test in life. Not what is, and so chesed means that integrity is the standard of conducting life in a trial or a test, not resentment, not self pity, not bitterness, and not subjective reaction towards others, self, and God. So, not resentment, not self pity, not bitterness, and not subjective reaction towards others, self, and God. And we see that that's exactly what was happening in Naomi's life early on. And that's why I think the focus of this is not on Ruth. The focus of this book is Naomi because there's so many lessons that we learn from her because we see ourselves in Naomi. She started with resentment, self-pity, bitterness, and then subjective reaction. And not just towards God, but towards others. And then we do that. We react towards others. We affect others because of our bitterness and our resentment and our self-pity. And then, of course, towards yourself. You know, I'm without. I'm empty. I don't have anything. And that's not at all what was happening in her life. So in this chapter, we see a complete turnaround of Naomi's attitude and strong character performances by both Ruth and Boaz. So have a complete turnaround with Naomi, and we have good performances, good strong character performances from Ruth and Boaz. And what we also see is God's hand shaping the event of all three of these people's lives. And as I kind of like to refer to this, as the curtain falls here in chapter 3, all the, cur- all the characters have played their roles very well, I think. Naomi has taken the initiative and jump-started the action. Ruth has carried out her delicate and daring scheme, and Boaz has responded in a very wonderful way. So, you know, if we look at this, we see all these characters carrying out their roles well. Naomi has initiative. Ruth is the one that's really executing the daring scheme here that's been been given. And Boaz responds uh, in a wonderful way in integrity. And the reader, as witness of the drama, now waits with Ruth to see how the matter will fall. How will this matter fall? And so we move on to chapter 4. So we move on to chapter 4 which I'm going to call Act 4. Act 4, you know, change the scenes, curtain falls, everything going on. We're now going to see how Boaz handles this situation and the results that are going to occur in Ruth and Naomi's life. All right. Verse chapter 4. All right. Let's see. Let me read the first four verses. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And so we see, and behold, sort of an interesting way of introducing that. And we could probably say, and well, what do you know? By chance. Behold. Remember this, and I'll mention it later. This is exactly how Boaz was introduced. And Ruth goes out to work. She gets into the field. and She's working there. And behold. Boaz. Well, what do you know? By chance. Here's Boaz. So we see that again here. Our, uh, the narrative follows that same course. So Boaz said, Come aside, friend. Sit down and sit down here. Or sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. Little does he know what's going to happen. You know, <laughs> this friend, come over here. Have a seat. Oh, okay. Well, thank you very much. Probably like saying, 
Can I buy you a cup of coffee? Sure, that sounds like a good idea. Reeling him in. Then he said to the close relative, Ah, now here we go. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And we'll see that we really need to do some work on that because that the word sold there causes us some problems and we have to sort that out. Verse 4, And I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it, and the word really is buy, but buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants of the elders of my people. Excuse me, did I skip verse 2? I did. Verse 2. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. So Boaz has to set the stage here for for four. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of the people. So he's saying that a legal proceeding is going to occur, and we need, and there's going to be witnesses to this because uh, what's going to happen needs to be understood as being appropriate, and that, for the most part, has to do with the land and the inheritance and the possession. So everything that goes on here uh, can't just suddenly say, well, I guess he just decided to take the land or he just decided to do this or decided to do that. No, it has to be done in an appropriate way. So do it in the, inhab- in the presence of the inhabitants of the elders, of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know for there is no one for there is no one but you to redeem it and then i am next after you and this closer relative then says i will redeem it so when we get through this part up to verse 4 we see that boaz is the one that feels the responsibility for this situation of course he also has some personal interest in it as well so he has now gone and set the stage, and he's talking to the uh, closer relative, as our text calls it, and we'll see what he's really saying there. But what's happening is he's setting, sort of setting the stage, and it's hard for us to know how Boaz sees this playing out. We don't know that if, if this is working out exactly as he, he saw it, because it very well may have been a very... Uh, uh, prosperous piece of land or a well-located, something about the land that he knows the other person will want to take, uh, take this responsibility. We just There's just so much here in the background that we don't know. But Boaz offers it to him and he says yes, and we might, at the end of his statement saying, I will redeem it, we might say, wait a minute. That's not how this is supposed to work out. And so we might, our hearts might skip a beat here at this point. But anyhow, let me give some background material before I I jump into verse 1 here, because I think it's important for us to to see some of of this. And I, I think I've explained some of it already, but let me see if I can pull my thoughts together here. In the previous chapter, in the previous scene here, previous act, we've seen that Naomi and Ruth have approached Boaz and expressed their opinion that he, Boaz, is the kinsman redeemer, the goel, as we've seen. That's our word here. The other Hebrew word that we're using is goel. So we now see that uh, they've expressed that opinion, and they would like for Boaz to resolve the situation for both of them, for Naomi and Ruth. The problem is that Boaz is not really the Redeemer, and Boaz knows that. So that's our problem. And I think there's a couple of points here I can make, maybe four of them. First, he's not the brother of either Elimelech or Malon. Malchon, as his name is pronounced. So he's not the brother of either Elimelech or Malon, Ruth's husband. Uh, and this is the first time, by the way, that we determine that uh, that is, in fact, her husband. The the one of, of the two that were mentioned, Malhon, is her husband. M-A-H-L-O-N. Secondly, 
we find out that there is someone who is nearer to being the kinsman redeemer. So while there is no one immediately available to be that, we find that there is, of course, someone who is going to be nearer to being the kinsman redeemer. But for some reason, he hasn't acted. For some reason, he has not acted. And we have to say in all this that it appears that Naomi hasn't approached him. So, what's wonderful in all this is that when they return, Naomi and Ruth return, Ruth, because of her character and who she is, says, I'd like to go out and work. I want to go out and glean. Glean. And so she goes out to glean, and the very first day, as near as we can tell, she stumbles onto Boaz's. Stumbles. She comes to Boaz's property. And that night, she tells Naomi for whom she's working. And immediately now, Naomi knows of Boaz. So she's not thinking of anybody else. So all of these coincidences that we see sort of lining up, this is probably another reason why Naomi doesn't immediately seek this other person. Naomi is probably well aware of how the relatives line up. But what we see so far is that this other relative surely knows Naomi's back, but maybe this is not on his mind. He's just, for some reason, not thinking in this regard. So he hasn't acted, and it also appears that Naomi has not approached him. And more than likely, Naomi hasn't approached him because now she is thinking of Boaz. And so all of this works. Again, the Lord works this. Third, the kinsman-redeemer principle would apply more aptly here to Naomi and not to Ruth. So really, the kinsman-redeemer a principle that we've studied, that we've seen in the past, applies more aptly to Naomi, not to Ruth, because Boaz is related to Elimelech. And, from what we can tell, there are no other brothers from Naomi, or excuse me, and we know that there's no other brothers from Naomi for Ruth to marry. So the first person in this relationship is Naomi, and Boaz is related to Elimelech. So now, the the first person in line here is Naomi. But our story seems to indicate that Naomi was beyond childbearing years, and I think that's what she tried to tell us. That's what we seem to see. So later on, when we see the celebration of the child, it seems to be more for Naomi. And that kind of helps us when we get into chapter 4, further into chapter 4. There's a big celebration once and I'm getting ahead of myself. I hope I'm not revealing anything that you don't already know. That things will work out and that Ruth is going to get, will marry and that there will be a pregnancy and that there's going to be a big celebration. But the celebration seems to be more for Naomi than for Ruth. That's the emphasis. So I think that's what we can see here as we begin is the story seems to indicate that Naomi is the one that's really center stage here. We see the celebration of the child, and it seems more for Naomi than Ruth. And at that point, I think, we need to realize that the first problem seems to be an heir for Elimelech. And by providing for this problem, we also provide for no children from Malchon as well. So we work with Elimelech, and then we go to the next ones. Okay, and then fourth, there may... Fourth... There may be many reasons why Boaz has not approached Ruth, but several are that she may have still been wearing her mourning apparel. She still may have been mourning. It's possible also that Ruth may have seemed young for Boaz. We don't know that. We've tried to uh, establish their ages, but we simply don't know that. And he may have also seen that there was too great a social distinction between him and this Moabitess between Ruth. And, of course, we've also said that uh, he may have been waiting as well to see if, you know, how she felt. <clears throat> we also have another situation that we have not specifically addressed in the relationship to Boaz and Ruth, and that is that Jews were prohibited from marrying Gentiles. 
So that's another situation, and I kind of mention it now when I talk about the social distinction. The social distinction could have been that she was just too far maybe down the ladder from him, but we have this other situation that Jews were prohibited from marrying Gentiles. And we see that in Deuteronomy 7.3, Deuteronomy 7.3, and also in 1 Kings 11.2. Let's, uh, let's go back to, we've been to Deuteronomy 7.3 a couple times, I think. Uh, let's look at Deuteronomy just very quickly to get that, uh, the sense of what I'm saying. Deuteronomy 7 2, 3. Deuteronomy 7 3. Okay, Deuteronomy 7 3. And this is, again, Moses giving guidance to the people. I think I'll start in verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, take by force, and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them, you shall defeat them. It's actually the word for smite them. And utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons. For your, And then it tells why. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So we see that there's a prohibition here. But of course the prohibition is based upon the fact that we don't want to be distracted to other gods. Now, we may not have that situation here. Now let's go to 1 Kings 11.2. We have the same situation in 1 Kings 11.2. Down the road. So we see it previously in Deuteronomy. Now we can go behind us. Uh, that was ahead of us and now behind us in 1 Kings 11.2 with Solomon. 1 Kings 11.2. So we see the prohibition from doing it. Now we see the, uh, the realization of the reason not to do it. But King Solomon... 1 Kings 11.1, But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughters of Pharaoh, women of Moabite, of the Moabites. Here we go. Now here we have a Moabitess. Uh, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the, Sod- the Sidonians, and the Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. But Solomon, we see, clings to their love. So we do have prohibition against this. Uh, That's something else that we haven't mentioned. And whether that is something that Boaz is considering or not, we don't know. Uh, And again, this was not a racially motivated law, but one founded on the principle of protecting Israel from the influence of paganism through marriage. So we do have this prohibition. And it's possible, I haven't considered this yet, it's possible that Boaz was not yet convinced of Ruth's commitment to the God of Israel. And so, you know, it's one of those things where fathers and mothers talking to sons and daughters would say, do you know whether he is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's don't be dating people, developing a close relationship with someone who is not a believer. Because when you get involved with them, sometimes it's very difficult then to turn the relationship off. And so, it's possible that Boaz wasn't convinced of Ruth's commitment to the God of Israel and was being patient before he decided to act. Why? Because marriage is a much different situation than being acquainted with someone, being kind to them, and developing maybe a friendship as he has somewhat developed here. There's also the implication of the harvest, and I always like to bow to Boaz here a little bit too. He had the demands of the grain and the harvest and the efficient use of his workers, and maybe he's just decided that the situation with Ruth is something he's going to get to down the road, but uh, Naomi and Ruth kind of move it forward a little bit for him. And so early in the morning, he's off and heading into town. He's got to get this done so he can get back and take care of the grain, you know. First things first. However, Ruth's actions and identifying 
identification of Boaz as a kinsman redeemer has pushed the situation to the point of decision with Boaz. Boaz now needs to make a decision. She approached him privately at night after all the distractions are passed, and they had a very private audi- she had a very private audience with him, I'd like to say. And this was not a subject discussion, you know, uh, uh, something that could be discussed with others. So it's just between him and her. We notice that he's not upset with her in any way, but to the contrary, continues to treat her with kindness and consideration. And when she requests that he take her under his wing, he knows precisely that she's talking about protection here. And not only protection and security under his care, but he is also, she's also requesting marriage, I think. And I think that that's all involved in this kinsman redeemer. And so at this point, Boaz is now able to make a decision with regard to the law and the procedures. So he now knows what he has to do. See, probably up to this point, if that's not going to be, if she's not interested and Naomi has something else in mind, then maybe uh, he doesn't have to go through this procedure. But now he knows that he must do that. He needs to move forward with the law and the procedures and with and trying to fulfill his promise to Ruth about Ruth's intentions and now his intentions. And... What I, haven't, what I don't know that I've said before is that Naomi probably understood all of the difficulties bearing on the situation. And she knew, she knew she could help Boaz clear up several points and then let him act on the others. So he, she's, I think that's why she's acted. So at this point between both Naomi and Boaz, if Ruth was not in agreement to the solution proposed by Naomi, she could have declined to approach Boaz, and I think that that's inner, the inner workings is, is here. However, by consenting to following through with the plan, she was acknowledging that she would acquiesce to being Boaz's wife and that she was committed to the life of God, to the God of Israel, by whose law, by the way, she was not only following, but she was actually invoking it as a means to getting Boaz to move. So she is now committing herself. And I think all of these are important here. She is, she's asked, and by asking, I think all of this relates to Boaz. Boaz now knows that she is committed to the God of Israel. Okay. Yes? you think that Boaz kind of railroaded this guy? Well, we'll see that down the road here in a minute. Yeah, I mean, because you're walking down the street, and all of a sudden, you oh, Dan, sit down and, oh, by the way, let me bring ten other guys in here so we could, you know. So did he know right then when he said sit down merely where they were, did he know that he was about to enter into a business transaction? Well, we'll see that next time um, because we'll notice that when we go to the gates of the city that that's where legal proceedings were would transpire. Now, whether we can say he would have had the same sense had we said, come into the, uh, into the courthouse here. I want you to come into the courthouse here because we need to discuss something. But I think the sense of that is there. Uh, Boaz certainly didn't, didn't give him any time to think about it. Yeah, and, and of course, the mere fact, if somebody asked you something, if it was me, and somebody asked me, you know, you bring a bunch of guys in, and somebody says, well, either you do it or you don't. Well, your natural reaction as a guy is that, yeah, I'll do it. You know, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. Even though even though you may not even know what you're doing. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if he would have seen it as... As much of the way you're saying it, because Boaz then rounds up witnesses, and we're going to see this next time. He rounds up the witnesses so that the proceedings can be considered appropriate and legal. Because if he says, no, I don't want to do it, and there's no one standing there, then everybody will wonder later on, did Boaz just take the land and Ruth and Naomi, did he just decide he was going to do it so he could have a Limelech's property? So he wants to make sure that it's done appropriately and there are witnesses to it. Now, um, does Boaz sort of set the stage in his favor? I think the answer could very well be yes. 
But you'll notice that the way he approaches it is by, and we, we'll have to get to this next time, the way he approaches it is, do you want the land? You know, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, indicate early on that there are other considerations as well. So I, I honestly think, and if I think of this maybe a little bit more, I'm glad you asked the question, I think he gives him the opportunity to respond favorably towards his responsibilities. Because as the next person in line, the responsibility does fall to him. It's your responsibility. And so uh, he gives him that opportunity to say yes before he says no. We kind of hear that today. People saying, yes, I I voted for it before I voted against it. But anyhow, he's now saying... He's given him that opportunity. And I think this may even be seen as a, uh, a point of character on Boaz's part. He's going to say, would you take on the responsibility of the Goel? And his answer is, yes, I will. Then he follows that up, as we'll see in the next paragraph, by saying, by the way, there's more involved in this than you think. And at that point, we have to kind of make a determination. We're not told, passage doesn't tell us, as to why... Uh, the Goel, the nearer relative, is now going to say, hmm, you're right. There's more here to be considered. And if, in fact, that is part of the package, then maybe I can't do this. Because it also, does he have to buy it, does he have to buy it twice? Because he has to buy it from Naomi. Then he says you have to buy it from Ruth. Does he yeah. have to pay for it twice? No. And we're going to discuss that because the purchasing of the property here, really, I don't think I don't think that's a very good translation. And we're going to see next time why it's not the best translation. And I don't think that's what room, uh, Naomi's saying. Uh, I think it kind of misleads us here. Uh, let me finish up this and then we'll... I want to... Really, I thought I was going to get to four, but I guess I, get, I talk too much up here. But anyhow... Uh, as I said, in the last scene, we see that Boaz wastes no time. He moves out. He heads into the city uh, before, you know, either at first light. And he goes to the gates of the city to conduct the business of the kinsman redeemer. And I think that's what's important, is that he goes to the gates. And that's where we will see it's uh, pretty much understood. Let me continue here. Let me finish up. Ruth returns to her mother-in-law, reports the events of the night. And Naomi says to her to sit tight, wait to see what Boaz does. And I think Naomi here has guessed correctly. That's what we see. Naomi guesses correctly in her assessment of Boaz. She thought that Ruth demonstrating, you know, uh, she thought Ruth demonstrating her intentions that she was willing to become his wife. That was, that's what, how she demonstrated this. Would allow him to act, and I think, confidently, honorably, and legally on her behalf. So I think that Naomi senses, you know, Ruth, if you give an indication here, then Boaz is going to feel confident to act honorably on not only uh, my behalf, but also on your behalf. So I say that he acts confidently, honorably, and then we're going to see legally on Ruth's behalf. She guessed that that Boaz was not only a man of honor and would see the, the details through for Ruth's cause here, but also very much interested in her as a woman. So, uh, And I think that's what Boaz indicates here. Boaz doesn't hesitate. We saw that. He didn't say, I don't know if I can make this work, or I don't know if this, you know, I've been thinking about marriage or planning marriage all my life, and Mm, I don't know if this is it. No, Boaz doesn't do that. Boaz's Boaz responds immediately. However, up to this point, he's been a gentleman, and he doesn't act aggressively towards her, and he was responsible in that he continued to focus on the harvest and what was important to his business, you know, business before pleasure, I might say. In the meantime, he was seeing to the care and the welfare of both Naomi and Ruth. So I think that's how this next part is going to play out. I think that Boaz... Uh, is very much interested in Ruth. I don't think he's acting now because he wants the land. I don't think that was something that he felt was uh, important. But I think he all. But he did 
count Ruth's feelings, uh, her um, intentions. I think that was all very important to him. And so now that he has that under his belt, now I think he's ready to go. And next time we'll come back. And even though I've sort of addressed a little bit of what's happening in chapter 4, we'll be ready to go right through verse through those early verses. And hopefully uh, we'll get down to at least uh, the point where Boaz... Um, uh, is able to purchase the the way this says purchase the land but really it's better to say he's going to assume the responsibility I think let's close in prayer Dear Heavenly Father thank you for uh, the opportunity that we have to see life's situations play out in Naomi's life in Ruth's life and also in Boaz's we're thankful Father that we see that waiting on you is important It's also important for us not to react and respond to difficult situations because they will occur in all of our lives, no matter who we are or what's happening. And we know, Father, that even though we do have tests and trials and pain and anxiety at times, that you're still there, that you knew of these things uh, in eternity past, long before they occurred, long before we were born, long before the situation developed, and you have... uh, over that same period of time, provided the solution as you've provided for Naomi and for Ruth and also for Boaz. And Father, we're thankful for these things, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.